Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm joined here today with Emily Walsh Martin. Emily's a principal at Tremont Therapeutics Consulting. Excited to be talking today about what we all saw, heard, and learned from the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapies Policy Summit. The lineup was incredible, and as advertised, there's just a ton of content to cover in our conversation with Emily today, including one-on-one conversations with Nicole Verdon, the brand new director of FDA's Office of Therapeutic Products, and Laura McWright from the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation. Now, if you missed out on attending live in Washington, D.C., or, or maybe you're just hearing about the ASGCT's Policy Summit, you can still register and watch the entire event on demand through October 19th. As a reminder, the Policy Summit connects attendees with leaders and decision makers throughout the regulatory policy and government relations world. The perspectives and insights that were discussed at the ASGCT's Policy Summit inform the regulatory, legislative, and payment policies that will impact cell and gene therapy development. Check out the full program and register online to see all that great on-demand content at asgct.org slash policy summit. Or you can also check out the show notes for the link. So thanks for joining the podcast today, Emily. Uh, let's dive right in. And maybe we could start with uh, you sharing your history with attending the Policy Summit and what brings you back to this conference year after year. Yeah, so I, uh, it's a great question. Um, it's funny, when I talk about ASGCT, uh, I, I, uh, I, I certainly talk about the annual meeting, of course, but it's the policy summit that I'm, I'm doing the hard sell on with all of my colleagues. Um, and, uh, you know, my first time attending, I think, was 2019. Um, uh, and uh, just have every year gotten so much out of the summit because it, it takes some, it takes topics that I've approached as a program manager, uh, helping teams navigate, you know, from the lab into the clinic for the first time and sort of spins them around and gives you the full view of what you have to do to ultimately get that product to a patient's hands. Um, and so, uh, oftentimes with, uh, drug development in cell and gene therapy, you know, your first trial becomes a heavy part of your dossier, uh, for, for making, uh, the case, uh, that, that you're ready to get market authorization. And so you almost have to start thinking about access issues uh, and, um, you know, patient needs, like uh, before you even start your first in human, because uh, those threads will continue your entire uh, uh, development path. Um, and so for me, I attend this summit every year because I'm, I'm I, I literally learn something new that impacts what I'm thinking about even before IND sometimes uh, for my clients. Such a great point. And you're absolutely right. Throughout the conference, uh, th- there was a lot to dive into to learn how early in the process you really need to start to be thinking, even commercially around reimbursement and things. And I know we're going to get into lots of this. There was so much content this year. What was your favorite session? 
So, so I think I, I had the same feeling as other attendees uh, that that last session, uh, the patient access to uh, CGT's realities on the ground was like the highlight of the conference. And in part, you know, every year the HCT has a, a, a session like this where they bring together people who have the patient view, people who have the payer view, people who have the policy view uh, uh, and, and clinicians to sort of discuss all the handoffs that need to successfully occur to ultimately be able to treat a patient. Um, and it, 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 again, reinforces uh, uh, how small decisions that you make, even as early as, you know, IND, uh, can have a major impact on the likelihood of success that aftermarket authorization, your product gets into the hands of the people that need it the most. Well, maybe just were there, were there other key takeaways from that session that you'd want to highlight? Yeah, I, I think the other interesting uh, part of that uh, whole session um, was, uh, and this, this is, this is, you know, a benefit of having these all now uh, on demand because you can go back and you can listen uh, to, to the two sessions sort of side by side and, and compare and contrast what you're hearing from different folks. But, um, for instance, in that session, um, uh, it was uh, John Fiore from the Institute of Gene Therapies, um, was, uh, started to talk about, uh, the initiatives that are going in, uh, on in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, the CMMI, um, and, and his sort of slightly different view about the complexities of, of, uh, trying to be a single negotiator, uh, for, uh, all the states around certain elements of, uh, uh, of, of reimbursement. Um, and so it was very interesting to me to be able to, you know, go back and forth and listen uh, to what was Laura McWright saying in her session versus John Fiore in his session um, and how, uh, frankly, there are small details about how healthcare works in the U.S. and how reimbursement works in the U.S. that seems for many classes of drugs, like small molecules, to be, you know, details, like nothing, nothing to get too overly concerned about. But for cell and gene therapy, they have huge impacts. And so it's, it's really interesting to, to hear um, the experts peel this apart from their, their specific uh, perspective, um, and sort of reveal that the complexities of of, hey, it sounds great to have one-stop shopping uh, for a Medicaid conversation uh, uh, instead of having to go to each each of the 50 states in turn, uh, but, but, but what are the complexities of that? So it was, uh, for me, um, you know, that's a session I will probably go back to again and again to try and understand how that policy sort of uh, evolves over time. Well, Emily, let's stay with that theme for a moment because I agree yeah. with you. Um, that conversation with Laura McWright from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, I know she outlined the three models that the agency's focused on. Of course, one of them being their ongoing effort with the cell and gene therapy access model. Can you maybe describe what that model is and what were some of the highlights from that session? Well, you know, I think I think she pointed out something interesting, right? So, so typically, um, the position a manufacturer is in. Um, is, uh, uh, you know, at the point of authorization, having to go sort of state by state and have conversations and say, um, uh, it, it, for instance, for our, you know, cellar gene therapy, um, we want to structure this as, as a success 
payment or we want to structure this as you pay up front. But if if we don't continue to have efficacy at time point X, uh, we're going to we're going to pay you back. Um, all of those um, conversations, uh, in theory, folks are now having to have one on one on one across all the states. Some of those states are going to have more or less comfort based on their population with um, those types of innovative approaches that may be perfectly appropriate for our cell and gene therapy. Um, and some are going to be perfectly comfortable with them. And so the the challenge is that um, uh, if, if you're a patient that happens to live in a state that has either a population that doesn't lend itself to that kind of structure or or just a state that doesn't have the experience of negotiating uh, on this, there may be a slower path to access for those patients in that state as a result. And so I, I, I in theory, really liked what Laura was saying about uh, trying to have um, some sort of clearinghouse, some sort of central uh, uh, concept that could help um, the state sort of unify the approach and simplify things. Um, on the other hand, that does create other complexities of, of, of the negotiation process. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves um, over time. And obviously, Laura wasn't able to give us any details on this. Uh, she sort of uh, be begged our patients multiple times in her, in her comments that, you know, she's really not going to have more to say until uh, 2024. She kept using the term heads down, which I appreciated. Um, um, but, but, you know, it will be important for us to watch that, uh, I think, as, a, as an industry and understand its impact. Great. So just, just to summarize there, I mean, what we heard was stay tuned for those who are in, you know, developing novel cell and gene therapies, stay tuned for more guidance on them on that model access model in 2024. Right. Right. Let's back up for a minute, Emily. The summit actually kicked off with a fireside chat with the new uh, head of the office of therapeutic products at FDA, Nicole Verda. What were your key takeaways from this discussion, this fireside chat? So, so again, I, this is another uh, uh, sort of element of all the ASDCTs, a lot of fireside chats uh, with uh, folks who um, uh, are, are, are going to play sort of pivotal roles in our industry as, as we move forward. And so um, Nicole's comments were amazing. First of all, I was incredibly impressed with her background and experience in the field um, uh, and also her experience within uh, the FDA in a number of different roles before before being in this role. I think um, I, she highlighted a lot of the challenges um that um the companies uh, are facing as they try to move products forward uh one is that you know there's a lot of activity here and and uh and the office needs to grow in order to be able to manage the workflow right um and i think uh all of us have felt the growing pains and she she acknowledged this uh, uh, regarding, um, you know, uh, uh, people coming up to speed as they've just been hired into the office and then, uh, uh maybe, um, uh, uh, not always being able to have a conversation, uh, maybe getting a lot more written responses rather than, <laughs> um, actual meetings, um, and how, uh, she's hoping to sort of steer uh, um, the office towards, uh, being able to really scale and, and deal with the, um, uh, the large number of, of, of products that are coming through. 
I think, though, for me, the most interesting part uh, that she commented on was the accelerated approval um, uh, concept. And and for me, this is um, one of the things that I think everyone has been struggling with, the, the benefits, obviously, of an accelerated approval based on a, a, a biomarker that uh, expected to, to portend a clinical benefit um, obviously holds a lot of um, interest from sponsors um, because that gets them to patients in theory uh, or at least authorized to be uh, administered to patients more quickly. The challenge is the gap between that and, um, you know, let's say a, a a full acceptance by the payers and, and those who reimburse the product. Um, Additionally, there's that gap between um, a novel biomarker uh, that we think actually uh, should uh, portend good results from a clinical perspective, and then those results actually showing up at the end. Um, and sometimes it can be, you know, years difference. You, you see something uh, in a circulating biomarker at year one that looks great, um, but then, you know, you really have to wait, you know, two, three, four, five years to understand if that, uh, you know, change in biomarker really did make a difference in terms of the clinical outcome for that patient. Um, it, it's one of those things that cuts both ways um, uh, where, uh, again, like it'd be great to get accelerated approval on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, uh, if that complicates the reimbursement conversations, if that complicates um, access, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of hard to know what to do. So I, I was, I appreciated that she sort of got the nuance of that, uh, right off the bat. I, I don't think, um, like she has all the answers. I don't think anyone has all the answers for how to navigate this. Um, but it's important that we keep talking about it, um, so that we can figure out the best path. Well, Emily, I just, before we, close on sort of the policy side of the meeting here with the regulators. I think um, one area that I know I was interested about in that, in that discussion were was a discussion around future regulatory models and the use of platform designations um, because mm. that, that in many ways is an enabling, like that will help accelerate development of novel gene therapies. What is your take on that? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. So, um, it, you know, in my career, I've, I've definitely uh, worked at platform type companies and and worked uh, with clients who have platform uh, type assets. And um, I, I think the devil's always in the details on that of of from a regulatory point of view, um, do I have a platform that really is sort of cut and paste, plug and play for every uh, uh, next uh, indication or sub indication that I'm, I'm going to pursue. Um, and a lot of that depends on the sort of risk benefit, um, um, uh, of, uh, of the next indication, uh, the, the similarity in expectations for, for, you know, efficacy, uh, and, and uh, and so forth. Um, I, 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 it's, it's funny. I think she was, she was, uh, definitely, um, promoting this. It'll be interesting to see how many products truly sort of, I guess, benefit from a platform designation. Um, certainly, you can imagine a scenario where you have a uh, monogenic disease with multiple different mutations that can cause it. Uh, and maybe you have to have slightly different, you know, 
constructs or, 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 or payloads to address each of those um, uh, different uh, sort of sub indications under the same heading. And that one makes sense to me very obviously that's a platform play um on the other hand uh if if you're going after you know two different monogenic diseases uh but with the same let's say av serotype and the same route of administration you could still have very very different risk benefits or very very different um uh sort of efficacy expectations for a lot of different reasons so uh, for me i feel like that's a watch and wait it'd be great if it's useful more broadly but um uh, but it it'll be interesting to see how narrow the agency ultimately um, uh, perceives the platform designation approach. Well, Emily, one of my favorite parts of the conference were was really those sessions with the patient focus. And I know that there was a session um, on patient focused development and Mary Dwight from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation really provided a nice snapshot of patient empowerment from the perspective of these cystic fibrosis patients. What about that discussion resonated with you? Yeah, um, you know, I, I feel the same way. I, I, I very much appreciate um, the opportunity to listen to patient and patient advocates talk uh, sort of brass tacks about what it's like for patients um, uh, with these indications. For me, you know, uh, Mary commented a lot about the sort of pre-competitive space that the Cystic Fibrosis uh, Foundation was able to really uh, um, uh, be a true leader in um, for all the products that have sort of moved forward in cystic fibrosis. I think I think she mentioned something like, uh, you know, every marketed product uh, like Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has had some some level of a of a hand in uh, helping to advance. Um, and and I think that's fantastic. I think they were able to anticipate a lot of the regulatory needs um, uh, and sort of build out efforts to have registries and these kinds of things that really helped um, uh, sponsors to to be successful as they navigated development um, uh, for that disease. You know, I think the one thing that um, they also mentioned uh, in uh, in that discussion, I can't remember if it was Mary or, or part of the panel discussion afterwards, was the concept of of patient data, right? So, um, and this is something I've been passionate about for a while. Um, you know, in theory, you're as a sponsor, you, you run your clinical trial, we're meant to follow people, you know, for, for whatever the duration of the first trial, and then typically, you know, you roll them over into a long term follow up to, um, to fill out your regulatory uh, uh, um, responsibilities to follow for five years, for instance, for a, a gene therapy. Um, and, and I would say that at this point, you know, we've got uh, a lot of programs that have started many, many years ago, and, and yet not a ton of data that's emerging yet uh, on the long-term follow-up uh, from those studies. Uh, and for me, what I was thinking during that panel discussion is um, uh, the comments about, well, in theory, yes, the sponsor owns those data, um, but, but on the other hand, it's actually the patient's data. Um, and so I, I think the one thing that resonated for me was the concept of what do we owe patients uh, 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 because they are, for instance, giving up their one shot on goal, right? Uh, by joining our trials, by be, being part of our, 
protocols, uh, especially for AD today with a, a lack of a clear path for redosing, you know, this is probably their chance. Um, and so I think uh, one of the things we may need to think about as a, a as an industry is what are our obligations in return? And and I would say at a minimum, it's it's sort of continued public uh, disclosure of long term data so that the entire field can understand what's working, what's not working, what are um, you know what are the learnings, um, uh, even if it's not in the same indication, even if it's in a you know adjacent indication. There's a lot we're still learning from each other, and the long-term data uh, coming out of these trials is an important part of that, and, and maybe we need to do a little better. So, Emily, you, you, you mentioned you know, the ongoing challenges with patient access to many of these novel cell and gene therapies, and I know those of us working in this space are passionate about getting these breakthrough therapies to patients and ensuring access. So, during this summit, there were several sessions where experts really talked about access and reimbursement challenges and policy developments. And so can you maybe summarize what were the highlights from these sessions? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'll, I'll again, you know, direct folks um, to that last session uh, and Michael Story from Nationwide Children's Hospital, because he's, he's sort of one of these people that uh, has to be um, one of the more challenging roles, right? In in the in the pipeline of everything that has to happen to get a get a drug to a patient, you know, he he's sort of that last step in the process of of helping them navigate reimbursement. And um, he uh, like I, I don't know, I just got to send people back to that session and and for and ask them to listen um, because the complexities of choices that we make during development and the impacts they have on his ability to do his job later are huge. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I shouldn't, I should leave a little mystery there and, and force people just to go back and listen. <laughs> yeah, there, there was a lot to unpack in that session and it, it makes reimbursement sound exciting again. I know there were sessions I would direct listeners to the coding and reimbursement session as well. That was part of that because it's really informed right. around how, how cell and gene therapies, um, you know, all the coding and how it's tied to reimbursement. So I would definitely suggest people check out those sessions. Well, and, and, and I think the other part of that, right, is in the coding session, you really get to pick apart like the, the different aspects of, of all the steps involved, right? So there's, there can be a, a procedural code, there can be, uh, you know, the drug code, uh, all of these things um, that you have to think about in advance. Um, uh, it's, it's a lot. Um, and sometimes there are small things you can do early on in a trial that's going to make life easier for you down the line in that regard. So just as we wrap up here, Emily, are there any other highlights from the policy summit that you'd like to share? You know, I, I, you know, the only thing I would say there is um, uh, that honestly, uh, and and I, I say this a lot, you know, but I I, I trained as a researcher. Um, uh, I moved into uh, you know pharma and biotech as a program manager and a program leader, um, and most of my work is basically on cross-functional teams, sort of moving things from development candidate into the clinic for the first time. And I attend the summit every year because for me to do my job of helping a cross-functional team move things into the clinic, I feel like I need to be aware of these. 
uh, topics and how they may impact choices we make as a team. And sometimes, you know, you, you, you can't sort of trim the sales early on in a, in a, in a product development uh, to address some of these things. But, but I think if we're trying to do the best by patients, we can't afford to lose track of them. Um, even if uh, it's not something you can implement, you know, uh, during phase one, um, it's something that needs to be on the team's mind. And so I encourage, you know, everyone on my team, whether they're, you know, in CMC or they're in uh, research, like this is an important summit uh, to, to at least give you a, a, a uh, an entry level view of all the complex issues involved. Well, Emily, I want to thank you for uh, for your insights and recap of this excellent policy summit. Um, there was so much to talk about. We only scratched the surface. So I would just invite everyone to check out the ASGCT website. There's still time to register and listen to the sessions on demand. Um, so again, thanks Emily for, for spending the time with us today. Absolutely happy to be here.